I'm going to ask you to stick your necks out a little bit this morning. Just take a little survey. Um, how many of you have ever had a negative experience with the church? Wow. Okay, well, it's time to go home, I guess. <laughs> not going to be able to fix that. Uh, no. I, I, I'm not surprised at all. Um, because the reality is uh, the church is made up of human beings. And human beings aren't perfect. And that means where you and I are present, imperfection. And if we are the church, we are going to fall way short of what God designs for us. We ought to expect it. We do set standards pretty high. We, we try to uh, think, we think that the church should be better in it. Some ways it should, and we'll talk about that. But we set ourselves up when we think the church is going to be perfect. We all have negative experiences with the church at one time or another. The problem with that is that there are, there, while there are many things that happen that, that shape our idea of God, our experiences, traumas, how we're trained, people we hang around, but one of the most profound ways in which our image of God is shaped is by the church. And when we have negative experiences with the church, it tends to create negative ideas and feelings about God. After all, these are God's people, and if God's people act like that, what must God be like? Right? And we have positive experiences with the church, so we tend to forget those a little more. It's the negative ones we tend to hang on to. But the other problem is that the church despite its flaws and, and problems, is, is, God, is intended to be God's presence, God's people, agents of God on this earth. And we sometimes wrestle with that. You know, we understand the problems, and, and the problems create the, the mindset that it seems like it's relatively new, but it's been going on for a long time, where people will say something like, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. And by that tend to mean, well, you know, I think about God, I have a relationship with God, but I don't want to have anything to do with God's people. And when we read the scriptures, we find that you really can't separate that. I mean, I've gone through my period of life where I basically thought, I don't need the church. Churches, you know, some people need that, I don't need that. But the older I get, the more I journey in my faith, I realize outside of extenuating circumstances, it is impossible for us to be the people of God that he has created us to be without the connection of the church. And so we read here in Acts chapter 2, the first picture of the church. Remembering the church is not a human idea, it's God's idea. He started it. It's his fault. And we find this, this, the group of believers coming together and in this picture, in this image that Luke gives us in the second chapter of Acts, we find the, the people realizing how much they need each other and being connected to each other. 
Because ultimately, our witness to the rest of the world outside the church is rooted in the church. Jesus says, you will, they'll know you're my disciples if you love each other. If you're connected to each other, if you're important to each other, that's how people will know you're my disciples. Despite the, the times you fail and the difficulties and the struggles, people will believe that you are mine if you're connected to each other, if you love each other. And the question is, what does that look like to love each other? I think there is a sense in which loving each other is rooted in a spirit of unity with each other. It says here in Acts chapter 2, they had everything in common. They were together with each other. There was the spirit of unity among them. Now, do you think they all thought the same way? Do you think they all agreed about everything? Oh, my goodness. Just take the 12 apostles. On the one hand, you have Matthew, whose whole occupation, his life, is about helping the Romans take money from the Jews. He's a tax collector. And then the other end of it, you have disciples that are zealots, and the whole existence, their whole mindset about living is to get rid of the Romans, to crush them, to destroy the Romans, so that the the Jews can become their own people again. And here you have these different opinions in this little group of 12 people. And you know that has to multiply as you get 120, 500 people, however many are a part of this day, 3,000 even, and yet they're united, they're connected. But it's not just even what we see here. It's it's the word of, of the Apostle Paul. Paul writes to the Corinthians and says, don't let divisions come among you. Be united with each other. And Jesus himself prays some of the last words before he goes to the cross. Father, make them one as we are one. In other words, make the unity of the church look like the Trinity. The unity of the Trinity. We think together. We act together. We're focused together. Now we're talking about miracles, right? And you see, it's not just enough to say, well, we sort of get along. Sometimes people, you know, will say, well, we'll just agree to disagree. And there's a place for that. But as someone was saying to me recently, I don't think that's enough in the church. In the church, it ought to be not just, well, we agree to disagree, which is code for, I'm right, you're wrong, and someday you'll figure that out. They said, you know, somehow we have to come to the place of saying, it's not enough to agree to disagree. We have to, even in our disagreements, love each other, care for each other, have a mindset, a spirit that says, not I'm right, you're wrong, and you'll figure that out. But you know what? We both are speaking some truth. And in fact, there are things about the way you see this that, quite frankly, are probably a better perspective than the way I see it. And I want to learn from you. And there are things about the way I see it that are a better perspective than the way you do. And you, I want you to learn from me. But we're connected to each other. And as opposed to, well, hey, we're just going to have to agree to disagree. And there's this wall between us. Instead, even in our disagreements, there is a sense of wanting to move closer and closer to each other because we care about each other and we love each other. And the things that divide us are less important than the spirit of unity and love that Christ calls us to live. 
I guarantee you in the coming weeks, as we talk, think about some of the sermons that we're going to be looking at, I guarantee you there are going to be widely range, right, wide range of opinions about them. Probably everyone's going to walk out being angry with me because we got all these different mindsets about it. It's a perfect laboratory in which we can learn what it means to be in unity even when we don't agree. Because we love each other. We care for each other. And something about that mindset says to the rest of the world, they're different. The question that, that triggered this sermon, and it came about in a variety of ways, but the question came down to, with all the problems in the church, why would anyone want to be a part of that? It's because we are different. We think differently. We have different goals. Different, we, we, we want to, to connect to each other differently. When there are disagreements, we don't just turn and run. We don't consider each other enemies like you, we see so often in our world around us. Rather, we keep saying, how can we love each other that much more even if we are in disagreement? Something looks different. And that unity will mean we will have a spirit of sacrifice and servanthood. If we always have to be right, you can't be a servant. You can't, it's impossible. You cannot have the spirit of a servant and always believe you have to be right. You, choose, you can choose to win or you can choose to serve and love, but you, they're mutually exclusive. If your goal is to win... You'll never have the mindset to serve. But if our goal is to serve, sometimes we win. Actually, we win because we're being like Christ. And there is a spirit of servanthood and a spirit of sacrifice. And you see again here in, this, in Acts chapter 2, where it says that not only were they together and had things in common, some people actually sold things because they had an abundance and shared with people who had need. They sacrificed. They gave up something precious and important because someone else needed it. I'm fascinated that the Apostle Paul writes to the church at uh, the Colossians. He says, I am rejoicing that I get to suffer for your sake. I celebrate that. I don't like suffering for my own sake, much less someone else's sake. And here is Paul sitting in probably a, a prison, chains around his wrists and his ankles. It stinks. And he says, I am so excited to be able to suffer so that you don't have to. Wow. That's the church being the church. A willingness to give up what we may want to hold on to because other people need it. If you haven't read Timothy Keller's book, The Prodigal God, I would strongly encourage you to do so. It's a terrific book about the whole parable of the prodigal son. And he makes a couple of observations in there that I had never thought of before. He said, when the father divides the inheritance between the younger son and the older son, he probably, in essence, is giving them all of his wealth. And so the younger son goes off and he spends his. And when he comes back and the father welcomes him into the home, not as a servant who's going to earn his keep, but as a son, 
Who do you think is going to pay for that younger brother's food and clothing and shelter? The elder brother. He's the one that has the money left. No wonder he's so upset. We'd be upset. That's not fair. Hey, you had your shot. You blew it. Too bad. You come work around and earn your keep. No wonder he doesn't doesn't want to come into the house and celebrate the party. Because he's paying the bill. And then he says, Keller says, what I think, what I think Jesus would have wanted out of that elder brother was even before his brother came home to go to his father and say, you know, my brother is acting like a fool. And we haven't heard from him for a while. I suspect his life is in shambles. I'm going to go looking, look for him. And when I find him, if he has wasted his inheritance, which I expect he probably has, I'm going to bring him back. And I'll use what I have to take care of him. That's the church. That's us being the church. And it it reveals the heart of God who continually says to his people, you care for those who are most vulnerable. In fact, you could almost say that God defines success among his people, by how well we care for the neediest among us. Throughout the Old Testament, how often does God say to to the Israelites, you take care of, your responsibility are the aliens and the strangers, the widows, the orphans. You take care of them. Don't them. Don't let them go. Don't let them live in need. You care for them. Leviticus 23 It's one of the places where God gives a direct command to the Israelites and he says, when you harvest your field, don't you dare reap to the the edge. You leave the edges for people who don't have a field to harvest. And you be generous with them because remember, I've been generous with you. And it's fascinating to me that he gives this command about how they are to harvest their crops and he ends by saying, don't forget, I'm the Lord your God. I'll take care of you. And I'm watching you. Jesus takes that even to another level in Matthew 25 where he says in the end times and people are divided between the sheep and the goats and those who who are in good graces with God and those who are not. What's the difference? What you did to the least of these you did to me. Something about the church Caring for the most vulnerable among us as, as what defines success in the church. What defines the heart of the church, the passion of the church. Is a completely different mindset than what we see in the world around us. And it's our calling. Because it's the heart of God. It's the heart of Jesus. I think among us, One of the most vulnerable groups, the neediest groups, were represented by this group of children standing up in front of us this morning. I mean, who more in our church is more vulnerable than children and youth? I mean, right now, their minds and their hearts are, are an open book to be shaped. And as the church, we can either shape them in a positive way or a negative way. Wouldn't it be awesome if because of our influence, 
they, be, they grew up and they were sitting in a service and someone said, have you ever had a negative experience with the church? And they would say, no, I never have. Wouldn't that be awesome? Because we have cared for them, we've sacrificed for them, we've been servants for them. Wouldn't it be terrific if we got to the beginning of the school year or the academic year and we're starting up our children's and youth programs again and we're saying, all right, Monday night, 7 o'clock, anybody who wants to work with children or youth, we're going to meet downstairs in the room below us here. And when you got here at 6.45, there were so many people, they couldn't all fit in the room. Because everyone said, I want to give, I want to serve, I want to help people, these young ones who are vulnerable. Because that's what we do in the church. It's the most natural thing in the world. And they are not the only people among us who are vulnerable. But they are an example of that. And something about the mindset of the church, loving one another, caring for each other, sacrificing for each other, sends a message to the rest of the world that this group of people is different. Why are we different Because we are living out the life of Christ among each other and outside of the world. And as someone has said, the the fact that we become a church and people who love each other and care for each other and have that spirit doesn't prepare us to be a witness to the world. That very spirit is our witness to the world. Jesus says, they will know you're my disciples Not if you love each other and then go out, but if you love each other. And our love for each other leads us to want to go out and leads us to want to share that with other people. And it creates a spirit in us so that when we go out to others who don't know Christ, we go with a spirit of love and unity and service and sacrifice just like we do with each other. We don't have to change. We just extend the borders. At some point, we have, as someone said to me recently, given up our authority to be Christ's people in the world. We've given it away. And it's not an authority to lord it over people or to judge people. It's an authority that gives us freedom to serve and to love and to extend grace. Just as God does for us. comes down to being focused on Christ. And all we're really saying is that we want to be corporately people who look like Jesus. Because we're so focused on Jesus, it comes out of us. The spirit of Christ comes out of us because the spirit of Christ, the focus of our fellowship is Christ. That's what he's calling us to be, to do. We come to this table, and this table reminds us that the church is not for people, not for the spiritually elite. It's not for people who've figured it all out, and then we come to God. This is a table that reminds us we are all undeserving. This is about people who are just common people like you and me who have, who have released our lives to Christ. And he's changed us. 
individually and corporately. And everything we do bears witness to the love and the grace of Christ who has generously filled us with love and grace. Maybe we will have gotten to the point where we've become who God wants us to be. When we ask, give me some questions about what you'd like to hear a sermon about. And one of the questions is not, why would anyone want to be a part of the church? But rather, the question would be, why would anyone not want to be a part of the church? Heavenly Father, you have blessed us more than we could dream or imagine. We come today acknowledging our need for you, acknowledging your grace to us, and asking that you would continue to work in us as your people. Father, as we prepare to come to this table, pour out the abundance of your blessing on the bread and the cup of which we are about to eat and drink. And as we do, may we know the presence of Christ in us individually and corporately. As we make our way to the front and we see all of our diversity We will give thanks because we are united and connected in you, our Lord and Savior. We pray this through Jesus. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, meeting with his disciples,